0: The war in Ukraine is escalating dramatically. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome back to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Brian Becker. Today, we'll be continuing our conversation with Eugene Perrier from Breakthrough News. Eugene is a host of The Freedom Side on Breakthrough News. He's also the host, the anchor of a daily podcast called The Punch-Out. We're going to talk about the two speeches by President Vladimir Putin of Russia, President Joe Biden at the UN today. Two speeches showing that escalation is, in fact, on the agenda. Eugene,
1: welcome back. Brian, thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, these are two speeches, really dramatic. Of course, a couple of days ago, we all learned, the world learned, that the Ukrainian government, obviously at the direction of the United States, at the direction of NATO, was able to carry out a very successful counteroffensive against Russian forces that were in the northeast part of the country. It was a sizable part of Ukrainian territory that was taken back, still pretty small compared to how much of what Russia actually still possesses in the East, in the Donbass. But obviously, this was another turning point. And when I talked to you a week ago, after that counteroffensive, I said to you, it seemed to me that the logic here is for a bigger war, a wider war, an escalating war, because neither side is going to accept defeat. And you said, I agree. Let's go on. Let's talk about it. So as we're preparing this show today, Vladimir Putin announces 300,000 more Russians will be called up. Mm -hmm. And he gives a major speech on national TV, which is pretty rare for Putin. And we're going to talk about that speech, what he said, what he didn't say. And then Joe Biden mounted the podium at the United Nations and gives a direct response filled with hypocrisy. I mean, here's the leader of world imperialism, of U.S. imperialism, the U.S. military complex. I mean, I want to start this discussion by listening to Joe Biden. We have two clips. I'm going to let's listen to the first one, then I'm going to get your impression, and then I want to go quickly to the second clip and then get this conversation going. Let's listen.
2: The United States has marshaled massive levels of security assistance and humanitarian aid and direct economic support for Ukraine more than $25 billion to date. Our allies and partners around the world have stepped up as well. And today, more than 40 countries represented in here have contributed billions of their own money and equipment to help Ukraine defend itself. The United States is also working closely with our allies and partners to impose costs on Russia, to deter attacks against NATO territory, to hold Russia accountable, with the atrocities and war crimes. Because if nations can pursue their imperial ambitions without consequences, then we put at risk everything this very institution stands for, everything. Well, there's two
0: points that jump out there to me, Eugene. I mean, one is that even though the language is about defense and helping the Ukrainians, it's basically Biden crowing about the fact that they've assembled a coalition that's basically financing the war, that this is a proxy war. And he says they have to do it otherwise, countries that go to war against other countries won't
1: know what the consequences are that they face. I, I mean, it's you almost don't even know where to start. I mean, the level of hypocrisy around what Biden is saying, I mean, the actions of the United States where, and I think we always have to remember this about Joe Biden, he was an active participant in so many of these different you know, foreign policy, I guess they would be called blunders, but they weren't mistakes, but you know, just crimes really over the years in the United States and paid zero price. So in fact, I mean, it's the United States that's actually set the tone for this might makes right kind of world. And certainly with the first invasion of Iraq in the 1990s, with the dismemberment of Yugoslavia, the second invasion of Iraq, and let's remember that Joe Biden wanted to dismember Iraq during that process that it should be broken up, turned into three different countries. The maximum pressure and sanctions campaign against Iran. I mean, the sad part is that we could go on and on and on talking about these various interventions that Biden himself was involved in. I mean, and obviously the continued facilitation of the Saudi war in Yemen, the greatest humanitarian crisis on the globe that the United States is facilitating. Remember the fist bump with Mohammed bin Salman? So people won't know the consequences of what happens when nations invade other nations? Well, I think they already know the consequences, which is if you're the United States or a friend of the United States, nothing Happens to you at all, and if you're anyone else, no matter how justified, you're brutally, brutally sanctioned. And you know the other thing about the financing, I think, is very interesting as well because the thing that really, honestly jumped out to me right away. You know, the president of South Africa, Cyril Ramaphosa, was just recently in Washington, and Biden made this big point because the Western nations have pledged to give eight billion dollars to South Africa for climate transition, and most of that money has not showed up. So a lot of people thought, "Oh, what's Biden going to say? Is he going to make a big announcement?" He did make an announcement of 45 million dollars and he says that climate change is the greatest threat to the globe today that's what biden himself says so
0: 45 million dollars for climate change in africa And what was the number? I think he said
1: $25 was what he mentioned, but I think it's actually high. I'm losing track of it and how they actually count it all, but it's tens of billions of dollars for this war in Ukraine. And then you wonder why most of the nations and people in Africa have looked very much askance at this U.S. effort, because it's such an obvious representation of the real priorities of the United States. There's
0: no way the Ukrainian armed forces could have carried out this big counteroffensive that did succeed without major advanced U.S. weapons, U.S. intelligence. I mean, for all intents and purposes, the U.S. is at war with Russia. But instead of American soldiers dying, which would be very controversial here. I mean, I think there would be a huge anti-war movement here. But if you can have other people do the dying, other people do the bleeding, let it be Ukrainians, let it
1: be Russians. Yeah, fight to the last Ukrainian. Who cares, really? That seems to be their attitude. there's no political
0: liability. The only thing that ever matters in American body politic is our Americans coming home in body bags. That's what happened in Vietnam. That's what happened with the Iraq anti-war movement, you know, in the resistance that grew and grew after the second war. So here's the new equation. We'll have other people do all the bleeding, all the dying. And you can see Joe Biden doesn't look unhappy about the war. He looks... He looks quite happy.
1: He looks quite happy. And no real—I mean, here you are, the United Nations General Assembly, and you think about the spirit of the United Nations and peace and unity. And wouldn't this be the moment, after so much death and so much destruction, to sort of raise some major call for peace? I mean, that's what many other countries have done. Macky Sall, president of Senegal, is the head of the African Union, he made the whole point of his speech, the need for peace, the need to bring people together. We've heard that actually from a number of leaders around the world who have spoken at the UN General Assembly about this issue, that it's now— time to look to how to end this war. But these powers that are funneling these arms, just huge sums of arms. And let's not forget CBS reporting that something like only 30 percent of those arms are ever making it to the front lines. So the residuals of this conflict all around the world, I think, will continue. But I think it really just shows the reality of the bellicosity of the Biden administration, how aggressively they are willing to push. And, and you know, this is another show for another time. You've done many great shows on Taiwan. But whether we're talking about Ukraine, whether we're talking about Taiwan, whether we're talking about about Latin America. I mean, the Biden administration really seems very committed to aggressively pushing, regardless of consequences, this U.S. unipolar hegemonic agenda.
0: Let's listen to this second Biden clip. It's shorter than the first one, but I mean, it's dripping with hypocrisy. Anyway, I don't want to have a spoiler uh, alert (laughs) to tell people this is dripping with hypocrisy, but listen for yourself.
2: I reject the use of violence and war to conquer nations or expand borders through bloodshed. To stand against global politics of fear and coercion. To defend the sovereign rights of smaller nations as equal to those of larger ones. Small
0: nations, Eugene. Biden, he's the tender place in the heart of U.S. imperialism for the plight of small nations. They must be treated as equals. They can't be invaded, occupied, and. Imp- have economic wars declared against them. I mean, a very, very moving speech, don't you think?
1: I mean, (laughs) it's almost like a—I mean, you just wonder who writes these speeches. I mean, obviously, people watching, especially around the world, are going to see through the hypocrisy of that. Maybe it's for
0: domestic consumption.
1: It may be for domestic consumption, for sure, to shape the mission of what's going on. But, I mean, you know, the tightest of tight nooses around Cuba with this blockade that Biden has continued to push. And, you know, despite actually saying on the campaign trail that he would remove some of those measures, he's removed none of those measures. The same thing with Venezuela, where— even in the midst of this massive gas price crisis with inflation in the United States. He refused, the US oil company begging him for the opportunity to go in and and do things. The Venezuelan government saying, we're willing to trade with you. We want to get back to, you know, the good relations between Venezuela and America, nothing. Would rather let the country be starved by lack of opportunity to have foreign exchange. I mean, the continuation and the dragging out of the JCPOA, of the so-called Iran deal, the attempt to put all these, I mean, you know, we could go on and on. I've already mentioned Yemen and their facilitation of the Saudi I mean, there's so many different elements that, like, when you think about it, it's like he's saying he's opposed to all the things the U.S. is actually doing. I mean, it's amazing the level of hypocrisy that's there. But I do think this is part of why you have seen so many countries all around the world not really want to line up for this thing on the side of the United States because it's so obvious how self-interested it is and it's so obvious how much it's sacrificing you know, the interest of the European working class, the interest of the Ukrainian people, the interest of the people of Africa who are being heavily affected by the rise of material prices, really the people of any corner of the globe. It's all about how everyone else has to sacrifice for this goal that doesn't benefit anyone but the tiniest cliques of people in the US and Europe who, of course, want to dominate the entire globe and are willing to risk anything. To do it.
0: If we went through the Americas and thought, like, what country has the United States not invaded? I mean, Eugene, people around the world, when they heard Biden talk about his tender concern and the United States' tender concern for the rights of small nations and how they must be treated equally, there had to be derision. There had to be laughter Perhaps this was really just for domestic consumption, for the American media, to keep the American people on the side of the Biden administration in the proxy war. Anyway. I want to move on, but it's pretty ludicrous.
1: No, I mean, it's completely ridiculous. I mean, you look at Cuba, obviously, where Biden is tightening the noose, you know, as much as Trump ever did, quite frankly. I mean, you look at, we've already mentioned Yemen and the facilitation of the war there. I mean, we could go on and on with so many nations of various sizes. But quite frankly, it's the United States that has really introduced this issue. I mean, there's so many small countries that have been invaded, dismembered, destroyed, all because of the U.S. whims. And I'm not talking about, you know, hundreds of years. We're just talking about the past 20 or so years with the complicity of Joe Biden that, you know, have been victimized to such a great degree that to even write that kind of line is almost unbelievable, the lack of self-awareness that it seems to show. But I think it's very clear that Biden is denouncing the very things the United States is doing. And maybe that's part of the strategy in and of itself, you know, is just deny, 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 and try to muddy the waters about what's really going on. But I have to say it's it's almost astonishing, but it is in a way, and you mentioned this at the top, Brian, Sort of a direct response to Putin, who pointed out some of these contradictions in his speech about U.S. foreign policy. He was, you know, scoring the rules-based international order where the U.S. makes all the rules and forces everyone else to follow them. He mentioned some of the other, you know, foreign policy things that the United States has done. But it's almost a direct response of Biden like, you know, you did this. No, I didn't. Even though the historical record shows that this is the case. The United States is the number one perpetrator of this kind of, you know, power politics on the global stage.
0: Yeah, no doubt. Well, you know, we played a couple Biden clips. I want to go to Putin's speech because, one, people in the United States and most people in the Western who are, live in countries dominated by the Western media won't really get to hear Putin. You know, and if you demonize the enemy, demonize the target, as the U.S. has been demonizing Putin for some time, You don't have to listen to the demon because the demon's a demon. So why pay any attention? But I want to play for you and for our audience some of the things that Putin actually said in this speech, which again is a speech in the direction of an escalating war. Here it is. The goal of that part of the West is to weaken, divide, and ultimately destroy our country. They are saying openly now that in 1991, they managed to split up the Soviet Union And now is the time to do the same to Russia, which must be divided into numerous regions that would be a deadly feud with each other. Then he goes on to say, this is what I would like to make public for the first time, first time today. After the start of the special military operation, in particular, after the Istanbul talks, that's in Turkey, Kiev representatives, that's the government of Ukraine, voiced quite a positive response to our proposals. These proposals concerned, above all, ensuring Russia's security and interests. But a peaceful settlement obviously did not suit the West, which is why after certain compromises were coordinated, Kiev was actually ordered to wreck all of these agreements. Now, I want people to hear Putin because he's making his case. He's making the case that they might have had a negotiated solution months ago, but the West didn't want it. Now, whether you like Vladimir Putin or not, and we're gonna get into some of, and critique some of his policies, you can't listen to those words or read those words and not think, wait, was there an opportunity for a compromise? And why on earth would the United States and NATO not want a compromise? And I think it's important because I believe the U.S. did not want the compromise. The U.S. wants this war.
1: In fact, they want a long war. I think that's a very, very good point. And it's notable that, you know, Putin's statements here about this issue of the truce come not that long after there is a recent article, I believe it was in Foreign Affairs, might have been Foreign Policy, but it was by two Russia hands, as they say, in U.S. parlance, people with longstanding ties and work in the region on behalf of the State Department, Defense Department, and others, where they stated explicitly that from their understanding, and again, these are like top U.S. officials, people who've been in and out of government, people who are dealing with this, so not, you know, whatever, Putin apologists, as the mainstream media likes to call anyone who brings up an inconvenient fact about this conflict, They said that when Boris Johnson flew to Kiev in that sort of dramatic moment, people may remember Boris Johnson kind of shows up there in Kiev, that he essentially ordered Zelensky not to make a deal, to say that the U.S., U.K., they didn't want to have a deal, NATO didn't want a deal, they shouldn't want a deal, they should fight, and that they were going to back them. And I think it speaks very much to the point you just made, but the point you made at the beginning about fighting to the last Ukrainian. And if we remember the beginning, and it's hard to remember the beginning, this was the rhetoric that was coming out of the United States, that they wanted to, quote, unquote, weaken. Russia, that the whole goal of the war was to try to prevent them from being able to grow and to expand and to take actions around the world, to stunt their economy. And Biden
0: said exactly that. He said, our goal is to weaken Russia.
1: 100%. And then only, ultimately, they started walking it back because, like, obviously, that doesn't really look great. Like, we're going to spend tens of billions of dollars and kill many, many, many thousands of Ukrainians and also Russians and potentially others just in order to weaken Russia, which ultimately, it's like, what a cause, you know, for these people to have died for and to be sacrificing other people's lives and other people's money to some degree when we think about those of us who are who are taxpayers and the communities that are being starved by these funds that are being sent to the Pentagon war machine, that really, ultimately, this was their goal from the very beginning. I mean, I personally believe when you look at the nature of how things you know shaped up, and I think people should go back and look at some of our earlier shows that we did on this in the socialist program, talking about that lead up to war, that the U.S. was to some degree hoping they could bait Russia into something. And then when they saw they had them on the hook they then used that as an opportunity to press this strategy which was to try to you know really weaken Russia so that it can't be forget a world power but even really a regional power which has been a major goal of the United States since 1991 I mean if we remember the the so called wolfowitz doctrine and, and what it said and the defense policy guidance that came out to clean up the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which had a lot of nicer phrases about Russia. I mean, it actually used the phrase of demilitarizing Russia and that the only role Russia could play in the post-Soviet era was if it was demilitarized and if it was essentially, you know, then brought into the broader and, and, Atlantic and Let me agenda. jump in because Please. just
0: for the audience. So the Wolfowitz Doctrine, which really became the doctrine of the neocons and really the consensus position in the U.S., basically says, now the Soviet Union is gone, the socialist camp is gone. We will brook no other rival to emerge. No one should even consider about challenging us either globally or regionally in terms of our hegemonic control of the world. That was actually the language of this Wolfowitz doctrine. Now, Russia was not included into NATO, not incorporated into NATO. And Putin said, we asked to come into NATO when the US was incorporating all of the, Russia's former allies. And the U.S. said no. And I think the reason is if Russia was allowed to actually coexist in a peaceful way as a big country, not a dismembered country, but a big country, it would actually challenge by virtue of just being a big, powerful country on the Eurasian landmass, American dominance, because Europe would start to gravitate towards Russia. Mm-hmm. Europe has been under America's domination since 1945. So when you hear Putin's speech, he said, they want to dismember us. They want to weaken us. And then you think back to the Welfowitz Doctrine as the operational doctrine of the U.S. This doesn't seem implausible at all.
1: No, I think that's true. And I mean, even before the Wolfowitz doctrine at the end of the Cold War, before the Soviet Union was fully broken up, but when the Warsaw Pact was dissolved, I mean, this is the conversation happening in the State Department and the White House, this explicit phrase being used, how do we get in between Germany and Russia? Because the United States foreign policy sphere felt, okay, post-Cold War, the most likely thing is Europe and Russia are gonna work together. And if Europe and Russia work together, then they're their own power that can actually challenge the way the United States wants to see the world go. And we know they wanted to go towards you know 100, 100% ultra neoliberalism. I mean, it's these things that I think for a lot of people now seem like fait accompli's. But for if you know the history, if you're there at the time, you can remember. There is a big conversation. I mean, even in the Soviet Union itself, some of these, you know, pro capitalist elements that wanted to dismember it, they didn't say it's going to be like, you know, dog eat dog capitalism. They said, oh, it's going to be like Sweden. We're going to keep free healthcare and all the stuff you like. And in America, they're talking about the need for a peace dividend. And why don't we use the money of No More Cold War to rebuild our communities? And obviously, we know the entire discourse in Western Europe around the issue of social rights, but of course that wasn't the real plan. But if Russia and Europe came together, you'd have a power that might be able to, maybe they wouldn't have pushed that kind of agenda, but at the very least could have gotten in the way of this extreme unipolar, neoliberal doubling down that happened post USSR. So when you look at Putin's statements, I think it's important, and I think the point you made is like you don't have to listen to the demon because he's the demon. I think people have to take Putin's statements and put them in the context of this history. And then when you put those two things together, then it's you start to understand a little bit more the mentality of Russia and what they're bringing to the table, you know why their red lines are their red lines, and why so many of these policies by NATO are so extremely dangerous with their bellicosity. And and I think for people who want to know, I did write an article called, Is NATO to Blame? You can find it on liberationnews.org. That goes through this 30-year history of the NATO expansion, why this is an important thing to Russia and how we ended up where we are. But it's not an accident, and it's really deliberate, and it's 100% aimed towards trying to make sure Russia whatever you want to say about russia to try to make sure they don't have the independent capacity to develop a policy and a line that other countries can follow that's different than the united states
0: yeah i 100 percent agree with you i want people to go and find your article on liberation news and to look at this 30-year period carefully and to see how it evolved because this is basically according to a, a plan in 2014 When the U.S. overthrew the Yanukovych government in Ukraine, the neutral government, the government that wanted to balance between East and West and pledged not to join NATO and replaced it with a pro-NATO government, Victoria Newland, who was, you know, Obama's State Department official, said, we've given Ukraine $5 billion since 1991. That was through the NED, National Endowment for Democracy, so-called. None of that money was for democracy. That money was designed to bring Ukraine into an American sphere of influence. And Ukraine was the second most important republic, or let's put it this way, the second biggest republic inside the Soviet Union after Russia. And it was the closest ally of the Soviet Union from an economic and military point of view. Yeah, that's all real. And when you hear what China's saying, when when the U.S. talks about Xinjiang in the western part of China, or Hong Kong, or Tibet, or Taiwan... The idea of dismemberment is, you know, like right at the front and center of these countries that feel targeted by the US. The US did end up breaking up the Soviet Union. It did encourage and facilitate, stimulate, and then support the breakup, the dismemberment of the Soviet Union, the second biggest power. Like, why wouldn't they try to dismember Russia?
1: I mean, Biden wanted to dismember Iraq. And I mean, I think people he, he will remember that. He actually proposed it. It was his biggest proposal when he was the senator saying, this is how we solve it. And when he ran for president against Obama in '07, that was his biggest thing, break up Iraq.
0: Yeah, have a Sunni Iraq, a Shiite Iraq, a Kurdish Iraq. Use ethnicity as a way to divide up multinational republics that were not easily controlled by U.S. imperialism. Let's go on to another part of Putin's speech, which is getting... A lot of attention in the media, I'm looking at the Wall Street Journal, Mm. Russia raises nuclear threat while Biden condemns Putin. Okay, nuclear threat, nuclear war, pretty important, especially both powers are are nuclear powers. Russia has thousands of nuclear weapons. But why did Putin mention nuclear war? Because he does. And I want to read a little bit, again, sorry to burden the audience with reading quotes from Putin's speech, but actually let's listen to it because When you hear it, you can see that Russia now feels that there's an existential threat and they won't allow themselves to be defeated. Here's what Putin says. They, meaning the U.S., have even resorted to nuclear blackmail. I am not referring only to the Western-encouraged shelling of Ukraine's nuclear power plant, which poses a threat of nuclear disaster, but also to the statements made by some high-ranking representatives of the leading NATO countries on the possibility and admissibility of using weapons of mass destruction, nuclear weapons against Russia. Again, this is Putin's speech announcing the escalation. I would like to remind those who make such statements regarding Russia that our country has different types of weapons as well, and some of them are more modern than the weapons NATO countries have. In the event of a threat to the territorial integrity of our country and to defend Russia and our people, We will certainly make use of all of the weapons available to us. This is not a bluff. This is Putin talking. The citizens of Russia can rest assured that the territorial integrity of our motherland, our independence and freedom will be defended, I repeat, by all the systems available to us. Meaning again, nuclear weapons. Those who are using nuclear blackmail against us should know that the wind rose can turn around. It is our historical tradition and the destiny of our nation to stop those who are keen on global domination and threaten to split up and enslave our motherland. Rest assured that we will do it this time as well. I mean, he's referring, of course, to the Napoleonic invasions back in the beginning of the 19th century where Russia defeated the seemingly much stronger armies under Napoleon. He's talking about the Hitler invasion in 1941, where the German Nazi military almost overran the Soviet Union. But with the loss of 27 million Soviets, they defeat the Germans. He's in this mentality. He's in this mindset. That's not the mindset of the United States. Biden is not telling the American people, look, we're under an existential threat from Russia. That's not what's happening. What Putin is saying should be taken seriously by people in the United States who are thinking people, critical people, objective people, because what he's basically saying is we're ready to go all the way because we're not going to lose our country. I would say when you hear this speech, people should be very alarmed and really demanding that the U.S. come back to the negotiating table.
1: I think people should be extremely alarmed. I mean, when you look at the recent uh, I hesitate to even call the election selection process of Liz Truss as the prime minister of the United Kingdom. In one of the interviews that she gave in one of the the big shows in the in the UK, this actually came up as a question of you know her willingness to use nuclear weapons. It wasn't in reference to Russia specifically, but the answer she gave was this extraordinarily cold answer of like you know why she would use nuclear weapons, that she was willing to do it, and the the presenter actually framed it in an interesting way because he said, "I'm not just going to ask you if you'd use them because I know you'll say yes, but how would it make you?" Feel to have to do something like this? And her response was, I'm ready to do it. It's my duty. It's my job. So, you know, the fact that someone who would be in that position couldn't express even the most basic human revulsion to the idea of massive nuclear war. Like, I mean, you could have set it up in a way that says, I don't want this to happen. Last resort. This would be terrible. I would never do it unless it was absolutely necessary. And she just basically stands up and salutes and says, God save the queen. Now, God save the king. I'm ready to nuke somebody anywhere at any time because that's my job. I mean, this is the mentality of these individuals at this level. And this issue of nuclear saber rattling is very serious. And when you have Putin saying, this is not a bluff. We're ready to do it. You know, there's a concept in nuclear war called the escalation ladder. And we've talked about this before yeah. on this show. And it's always said it's easier to go up than it is to go down because the way it is is if I go up a level, then you don't want to look weak. So you go up a level. Then I don't want to look weak. Then I go up a level. Then the same thing over and over. The next thing you know, there's a nuclear conflict. So when we have these kind of major inflection crisis moments and are thinking about a nuclear war that will destroy humanity on Earth, these are the moments where people have to say, well, wait a second let let's step back from the brink which is what happened in the 1980s. I mean, obviously, Reagan was successful in many different things. But clearly, there was a huge movement in the United States and Western Europe against the INF missiles, against the B-1 bomber, the huge demonstration here in New York that really, you know, was would put the peace movement on the map. A, a million people. A million people on, on yep. Central. And then, you know, and the next thing you know, you know, Reagan's in Reykjavik talking to Gorbachev saying, you know, we need to figure out how to get rid of nuclear weapons. It wasn't because he didn't want to push nuclear war. That was his policy. But it was obvious that the people of the world were like, whoa, we got to take a step back here because this is terrible. The hundreds of cities that became nuclear-free zones in the United States and the nuclear freeze movement. I mean, this is the type of thing that I think people need to be thinking about now, that when humanity is on the brink of destruction, these are not tiny little issues. And the issue of fighting to the last Ukrainian is not just an issue of fighting to the last Ukrainian, but it becomes an issue of where we're going. And when you look at Russia's statements leading up to this, they are essentially saying that they view things like the provision to Ukraine of these weapons that can fire into Russia and other sorts of advanced weapons as getting very close to what they feel is a direct confrontation with NATO. So you can think that it's just the US helping someone somewhere else and it has nothing to do with nuclear war, but that's certainly not how the Russians see it. And it's certainly not what the logic of war fighting in the nuclear age can lead to. So I think it's a very dangerous moment. I think that we're really on a precipice here. And the fact that there's no major call from the Western powers for peace at all, really. I mean, Macron had a little something in his UNGA speech, but... But by and large, they're just calling for more and more war and escalation. It's troubling.
0: Let's put the shoe on the other foot for people. Let's say Russia had a military alliance like NATO, a Russian-led military alliance. And it had like a member nation, say, in Cuba or Venezuela. And then for the last 20 years, it started to build and expand that Russian-led military alliance that included all the other countries of Latin America, including the northern part of Latin America and Central America. And then the alliance included the countries in the Caribbean, you know, islands that are not far from the United States. Let's say Dominican Republic, Haiti, Cuba. I mentioned Cuba before, but you can keep going. And in those places, in those spaces, in that territory, Russia could place advanced nuclear and conventional missiles targeting the United States, and those missiles had a flight time, say, of six minutes. Would the United States accept this? Would the United States say, that's fine, we understand countries have self-determination, they can join whatever military alliance they have. I mean, to ask that question is to answer it. Mm -hmm. Of course, the US would say no. We know even in 1962, Cuba, which accepted nuclear weapons, From the Soviet Union, the U.S. was ready to go to thermonuclear war. We narrowly avoided nuclear war. That's what Russia is thinking right now. Mm -hmm. They're thinking like Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Ukraine, all of the principal allies and former members of the Soviet Union, Russia's principal allies, Poland, Romania, they're all being brought into an advanced position territorially whereby the United States can place its conventional, which are very advanced conventional weapons and missiles and nuclear missiles targeting Russia. I mean, this is people should actually think when Putin said before the war started, these are red lines, don't cross them. And the U.S. says these are non-starters. Put the shoe on the other foot. How would the U.S. react?
1: I think it's an important point. I mean, we can see, I mean, forget nuclear weapons. I mean, Grenada built an airport to facilitate international tourism, and they were invaded by the United States, allegedly for creating a threat because the airport could host planes from the Soviet Union or from Cuba that might attack America, which, of course, was never on the cards. Al Haig, the Secretary of State, the first Secretary of State under Reagan, in his own memoirs, he says he met with the Cubans as one of his first things and said, if we get word that you're sending any weapons to Nicaragua to help the Sandinistas defeat the the brutal fascist dictatorship. If you send any military equipment to Nicaragua, we're launching an all-out war against Cuba. We're gonna take you out, we're gonna destroy you. And he says in the memoir, he calls it, it was deliberate shot across the bow to raise the issue of total destruction of their society. Just if they gave small arms to a guerrilla army in Central America that had no negative intentions towards the United States whatsoever and was just trying to free itself from this terrible, terrible dictatorship that the U.S. was backing. So, I mean, you know, giving out AK-47s and building airports in the region of the United States is enough to get you either invaded or at least potentially deeply destroyed. So, you know, nuclear weapons, I mean, forget that. And so, I mean, it really is like a totally—I mean, you can even look at the border policies of the United States, where one of the main ways by which they've militarized the border to terrorize immigrants is to suggest that Iran and Hezbollah are, you know, doing something in Mexico. I mean, you know, even no matter how ridiculously small these fake threats are, the United States will go to the greatest military lengths against any country that does anything that they deem to be insufficient. And that's why you look at countries like Venezuela, have to have these, you know. Tough militaries because they know the US will try to take them out. But be that as it may, I think that you're 100% correct. I mean, and the inability of the US political environment to see that is part of why people are so confused. Because ultimately, you know, what you just said about putting things on the other foot, I mean, that's just basic common sense, right? I mean, that's like everybody, the kind of way you're taught to look at conflicts coming up as a young kid in elementary school, you know, you get in a little fight. Well, look at how the other person felt about what you said. But to say something like what you just said on CNN, MSNBC, they'd cut to commercial and you'd never come back on. You'd be Because you can only say the most warlike narrative. You cannot say that the actions of the United States—that there's a moral relativism to them. And I think that that really, in a way, is partially why people can be so confused about these U.S. conflicts abroad because the entire U.S. mainstream media sphere is designed to make sure you don't look at the other side and that you don't give any credit or any credence or any benefit of the doubt to any other political actor because then you can see the house of cards starts to fall down on the basis of many of the things we pointed out already.
0: One of the things that's really important about Breakthrough News, about the socialist program, about other progressive, anti-imperialist, alternative media, is it's actually having the discussion that's not allowed in the mainstream media. And you're absolutely right. And I think younger people today, by younger, I mean people who are like under 50 might not really know, is that at the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis in the 1960s or during the 1960s in the Vietnam War, the media actually, there was some level of debate and there was a wing of the population called the liberals who were for peace, who wanted a better relations with the Soviet Union, who wanted to be able to travel and visit Cuba, wanted to see Cuba for itself, and certainly didn't want to go to war with Cuba or go to war with the Soviet Union. There was a liberal peace movement Mm -hmm. they were called the doves the doves are dead there are no doves there was a genocide a dove genocide in american body politic and so even the liberals or people who think of themselves as liberal maybe they support abortion rights or you know other progressive causes on this issue they're not liberal in the traditional sense the liberals and the conservatives are the same and that really has made a debate almost impossible in the mainstream media. That, too, makes it very dangerous because what politician, even the liberal politicians in Congress like Bernie and the squad, they might talk about health care or this or that about the domestic politics. They don't want to touch these big picture issues because they're going to get branded as being like traitors and be
1: ejected. I think that's 100% true. And even when you have something like Bernie trying to speak against the military budget or something, you know, they, they always find a way to wrap it in all of the normal propaganda. Russia's evil. China's evil. All these countries are evil. But even though they're all evil, we don't necessarily need to do all these other things. But that doesn't really make sense. I mean, if you agree just off the bat that Russia and China are these like alien civilizations that are evil and want to enslave the whole world, then is there really a good argument not to actually have a military force against them? I would say, not, because that's a pretty dire situation, you know, to have this kind of situation in the world if that's who they really are. And so ultimately, even the very tepid sort of attempts they have are so wrapped in the propaganda and the rhetoric to not be called a Russian agent. I mean, you think about that Vietnam era, which I think is so important. You know, I think about a book like The Best and the Brightest by David Halberstam, a liberal. But the whole thing is just excoriating liberal anti-communism and how it led to this, you know, terrible crime of the war in Vietnam. If a book like that came out today about the reality of American foreign policy, Policy, you'd be immediately branded a Russian agent. But that was a celebrated book at the time. and made a huge impact on how people have viewed the development of the Vietnam War and also McCarthyism and anti-communism and to see it through a very different lens because it was obvious to even many pro-capitalist you know, type of people that these policies were ultimately counterproductive if you wanted to see a world that was more just, less divided, less war, and so on and so forth. And I think now we have seen such a closing down of the space that basically only the other party criticizes the other party. So like, Republicans will criticize Democrats, Democrats will criticize Republicans, but on neither side, certainly as we're talking about here and what's relevant because Democrats are in power, is there a willingness to have an internal critique? And in fact, everything is towards having no critiques. And anything that's against that, then you're just branded as some sort of foreign agent. And I think we've seen the same thing on social media with the big media giants and the way that they have also sort of played into that by, you know, censoring content that they deem to be quote unquote Russian propaganda or Iranian or Chinese or whatever. But be that as it may, I think the most important thing for us to recognize is exactly what you're saying. When you close down the space for discussion, you really make one option possible. When all you can really hear about is war, escalation, and how Putin is evil, then that really is only going to lead you in one direction.
0: Yeah. All right. Let's talk about how Putin and the Russians are framing this discussion, because we are the socialist program, which means we are socialists. And we're not socialists like... Bernie or the Social Democrats, or there's so many different versions of socialism, it's kind of a confusing term, but we're socialists in the tradition of Marxism. We're in the socialists in the tradition of the socialist movements that had profound radical transformation we're against the existing capitalist system. We're not trying to put a band-aid on the system, but to get rid of the system and construct a new system, socialism. So, the Marxism or socialism in the tradition of the Russian Revolution that was led by Lenin in 1917 or the Chinese Revolution led by Mao in 1949 or Fidel and the, you know, the revolutions in in Cuba and throughout Latin America that took place or they didn't succeed, but they certainly were stimulated by the Cuban Revolution. In that version of socialism and Marxism, when we're critiquing war, one feature of our argument is anti-imperialism. And that's what we've been talking about. When we look at the U.S.-Russia proxy war that's taking place in Ukraine, and that's what it is, we can assign responsibility, profound and main primary responsibility to U.S. imperialism because it did push NATO east. It did escalate. It did refuse to negotiate. It did, according to Putin's last speech, we'll find out if it's true or not, scuttle peace talks between Zelensky and the Putin government. So we're anti-imperialist in the sense that we don't, are not joining the pro-imperialist anti-Russian choir. At the same time, socialists are also building the idea that our goal in the world is not to have multipolar power centers confronting each other, great powers fighting, It's to build a world where the working class, the poor, the peasants are working together. They're working together to build a new future. They have a forward-facing vision. The Russian government is thinking about its own national security. It's not offering the people in Europe or the people in the rest of the world like a forward-facing progressive vision about how the world should be reorganized. It's basically protecting Russia. So, okay, we can understand that. That's legitimate. But I'm against people in the socialist movement who say, well, Putin is fighting U.S. imperialism, thus we are the followers of Vladimir Putin, because politically, the way he has explained this conflict actually cuts against the idea of workers of different ethnicities and nationalities uniting. Marx and Engels said at the end of the Communist Manifesto in 1848, workers of the world unite. That became the banner. We wrote that. We All the left parties all around the world put that on our banner. And that was their answer to two or three or 500 years of endless war in Europe. They said, let's not keep killing each other. And here you have Putin describing the war as if the Ukrainian state is the creation of the evil Bolsheviks and the Soviets' nationality policies. You have, in the aftermath of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russians and Ukrainians who are comrades and brothers and sisters now killing each other. You looked at Armenia and Azerbaijan, two other Soviet republics almost endlessly at war. We were talking earlier today about Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan, mm-hmm. two other republics in the Central Asian part of Russia of the former Soviet Union that had accomplished so much by socialism and never had wars. They're now also killing each other. So let's, as socialists, put this in the framework of what I would say that the Ukrainian war, if you look at it just as Russia versus US imperialism and take away the context of the big picture historically, which is the socialist project was toppled in the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Pro-capitalist elements seize power. And that's the reason that all of these former allied peoples are now killing each other. Like Putin is not addressing that. He's only saying this is the byproduct of the imperialist manipulation, but his own storytelling about how the conflict evolved blames Bolshevism and Lenin and the Soviet nationality policy, which from our point of view is completely false.
1: One hundred percent. It's completely false. And again, I'll say we've done some good shows on this that I think people can go back and revisit. But I mean, not only is it completely false, but it's also resurrecting this czarist imperial vision of the sort of broader Russian environs that the Bolsheviks did away with. I mean, the sort of real essence of Bolshevik nationality policy was that these hundreds of nations, I mean, they used to call Russia the prison house of nations under the czars. And the whole essence of the Bolshevik policy, both before and after the revolution, was the idea of freeing these nations and giving giving them the opportunity to collaborate across a great space to develop themselves all at once. And you mentioned the Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan issue, not a really well understood issue, but you know it's over an area, it's a very rich, fertile valley that also Uzbekistan has a part of this valley too. So you've got this rich, fertile land that during the Soviet times, there's no real contradiction between being able to use that between the different socialist republics in order to lift everyone up. But now you have a situation where everyone wants to take their little bit of territory because they want to get as much as they can out of this very fertile area for their own narrow self-interest. And that's talking about bourgeois elites in these different nations. In these different nations. And it leads to, you know, pretty consistent fighting. The armenia azerbaijan thing and nagorno karabakh I mean, obviously, this was an issue that was deeply affected by the collapse of the Soviet Union because the Soviets had created this very complex system of how to manage the national relations inside the Caucasus, which, you know, you hear about the big countries, Armenia, Azerbaijan, Georgia. But, you know, it's a very complicated and complex grouping of areas. But they were able to be able to use that unified Space to create a a space for self determination for so many different peoples. But, you know, I think in the context of certainly, I think vis a vis the Cold War, it's worth saying. You know, to some degree, this is why there were more people who were willing to believe that the Soviet Union really was under attack and that the Warsaw Pact really was defensive. Because you had this policy of, of nationalities coming together, of unification, and of other things like that that didn't just seem like it was imperial conquest. It seemed like it was something different and new. And you could believe, like, huh, well, what's America really saying here? But when things are presented by the Russians, you know, they're using the phrase, the New Russia phrase about southern the southern part of what we know to be Ukraine. That's a czar phrase. And, you know, obviously there's a sort of deeper sort of Russian imperial view that this is a part of Russia and our natural homeland. Well, look, it was also a part of the Ottoman Empire. It was also part of the Byzantium Empire. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, we can think about all the Central Asian organizations that were moving into this area and controlling it at one time, too. So, you know, you look at this sort of presentation, I think it's easier for people to see it in a negative light, because it seems not historically based. It doesn't seem based on greater unity and brotherhood. It seems to be based on a highly nationalistic ethnicized version of former czarist imperial views of the Russian near environs. And so ultimately, I think that does play an important role into the perceptions of the conflict amongst other people and why some people say, oh, well, you're talking about U.S. imperialism, like why are you dismissing all these other issues? Because the issues that are both falsified and presented in a way that I think is very harmful have been injected into the rationale to where it's basically exactly what you said. What we want the world to be is not unipolar U.S. imperialism, but a bunch of other powerful countries that can either fight amongst each other or come to agreements about how to carve up the rest of the world amongst each other. And I don't think that that's a liberating vision. I don't think it's a vision that's going to you know, help bring humanity back from the brink in the 21st century. And someone can be justified and still wrong. Like you can say it was justified to punch someone, and that can still not exactly be the right solution to that issue. So just because there's a deep logic and understanding of how Russia was pushed up against the wall by NATO doesn't mean that there are justifications for what happened or exactly how they went about addressing it is, you know, ipso facto, then okay.
0: Right. I mean, one of the things that Lenin and the Bolsheviks did was they promoted unity between all of the different nations. And when you have a history where all the different nations are basically killing each other or like warring tribes in essence, that's not an easy policy. That's a complicated policy to bring people together, especially when Differences in nationality also correspond to class differences or differences in wealth, differences in privilege. And, you know, that's
1: an interesting point because the class element is not emphasized by Putin at all. And people get confused sometimes because Putin, like I think almost anyone who is from the former Soviet Union often recognizes the negative things that were introduced into Russia and other post-Soviet countries. You know, he said that the Soviet Union was the greatest collapse. But then here he is blaming Lenin for the policies of Ukraine and people who claim to care about Lenin. Well, Lenin's policy in Ukraine was to maximize Ukrainian language nationality in the education sphere, in the street signs, in the newspapers, in the journals, and all, so on and so forth. So that's one thing for people who claim to be Leninist. But also, I mean, obviously the emphasis of the Soviet Union was not a nationalist project, but a class project that had, you know, and could find allies all around the world amongst workers and oppressed people who also want to have a different kind of world. But Putin has erased all of that. And it's just a purely nationalistic, ethnicized, and quite frankly, czarist type narrative that is employed by him for his own justifications of why Russia is right and righteous to be waging this conflict. And of course, Everyone has the right to frame their politics how they want to frame their politics. But again, it doesn't mean that it is ipso facto then liberatory or ipso facto then positive in that sort of sense. And we have to be able to deconstruct those different elements, I think, if we are really going to pull humanity back from the brink and figure out it's not just what we're against, it's what we're for.
0: Yeah, indeed. And going back to Putin's speech on February 21st, just a couple days before the war, and then again, he made a major speech on February 24th. Really worth reading the speeches again. It's important to understand rather than have generalized views that are not based on actual knowledge. To understand Putin, you have to go read his speeches. I mean, he's actually saying something. But he's blaming the Bolsheviks for giving Ukraine the right to separate. You know, Ukraine, he said, shouldn't have had the right to separate. Well, the whole Bolshevik policy on the right of self determination, the right to secede, wasn't based on the advocacy of secession. It was really based on how do you create the marriage that's a marriage that will endure? Like, do you have an enduring marriage by getting rid of the right of divorce, Mm. which is the right to separate, the right to secede? The self-determination is the right to get divorced between peoples or countries.
1: It's a relationship among equals.
0: Yeah, so the right to divorce, you strip that. And one side, let's say men, are dominant over women in the patriarchy that emerged and women don't have the right to divorce, well, that's not going to be a good marriage. It's going to be a marriage that will undoubtedly have many conflicts, especially felt by those who are in the subordinate position. So Lenin's policy, the Soviet policy was, let's raise up Uzbekistan, let's raise up Ukraine, let's raise up Armenia and Azerbaijan and Georgia and all of the republics that had been oppressed by great Russia, by the Tsarist empire, not because we want to separate them, but because we want to make them a stronger unity. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when you look at the Soviet nationalities policy, which you wrote a major article on, I have it in front of me, Nations and Soviets, the national question in the USSR, which again, is on Liberation News, people should go read it. Nations and Soviets is the name of it by Eugene per year. You talk about the complexity of this sort of nationalities architecture by the Soviets. And again, very, very complicated. But those people were not killing each other. There was a section of Ukraine, of course, during World War II that did fight with the Nazis. And these are the the Zelensky regime and the Azov battalion. They're considered the national heroes of Ukraine, not the majority of Ukrainians, but a minority who did fight with the fascists Mm -hmm. because they were against socialism and against unity with the Soviet Union or Russia on a socialist basis. Yeah, there were nationalist elements in different places, but for the most part there was peace between the people and cooperation. If Ukraine grew wheat, well it also got discounted oil or subsidized oil from the Caucasus. From the Caucasus, mm-hmm. from the Caspian, from Azerbaijan. So it was this integrated economy. Its products were not enough, I mean, they were not, because the Soviets were excluded from the world economy, completely sanctioned, blockaded, barricaded away from the world economy. It became the self-sufficient economy, but each of the countries developed as a consequence of socialist economic integration. Uzbekistan, which in 1918, right, a year after the revolution, Mm -hmm. 2% of the population was literate. By 1970, Uzbekistan had more college graduates per capita than France. I mean, this was an affirmative action program unlike any others. And, and you addressed this in your article because affirmative action, meaning giving the oppressed an advantage to overcome earlier inequalities, isn't a policy of division. It's actually the policy for unity.
1: I think that's 100% true. I mean, I I think it's pretty clear that the Soviet Union, whatever negativities we could say, had probably the most far-reaching affirmative action program for oppressed peoples that any country has ever had. I mean, you know, it's in the Supreme Soviet, you know, almost every oppressed nationality or most of the main ones were overrepresented in terms of their representation. Certainly the way the resources were distributed was vastly more equitable than, you know, almost anything we'd seen in the United States. I mean, it really has probably only been in the past 10 15 years the United States has even developed the kind of discourse around the need to actually start to shift resources in a major way to address structural inequalities that exist. But the Soviets were also promoting the use of national languages, which is one of the number one thing that the czars sought to prevent to keep people from unifying against them is they imposed the Russian language on almost everything. So the Soviets started to then bring back and talk about how they were going to... And it went through a lot of different permutations, but at least at the elementary school level and sometimes just above that all people could be and would be taught in their national languages. That High officials would be lifted up, you know, from the oppressed peoples themselves in these various national republics and play different roles also in the broader Soviet Union. And in fact, if you really want to know, like, how potent it really was— It's worth noting that towards the end of the Soviet era in the 1980s, and this was something that Boris Yeltsin and others were playing on to promote their dismemberment of the Soviet Union, was how Russians were disadvantaged to all these other oppressed nationalities. Now, there's a lot to that whole question about whether they were or whether they weren't. But just the very fact that people who wanted to destroy the Soviet Union were able to seize on the fact that oppressed nationalities had gotten too many rights and had gotten too far ahead and were actually so far ahead, they were starting to displace great Russia. And they were able to mobilize that speaks to how far reaching these changes really were in terms of what took place there. And I think there's a lot to be learned there, whatever critiques we want to make. And I do hope people go and read the article. But I mean, really, it's important to take one step back, too, I think. I mean, nation states as we know them today are products of the rising capitalism. And the whole concept of the Soviet Union, this is also, by the way, the essence of Pan-African thought, is that in the era of imperialism, we're in a world market type scenario that ultimately, you know, dividing into as many little nations as possible is not actually going to help develop the productive forces so that people living in poverty can actually raise themselves up. But that various nations and ethnicities that share a physical and geographical space that has complementary economic potential have to come together across those imaginary lines on a map and across whatever differences they may have had and find a way to settle their differences and their quarrels and come together to then be able to exploit those various possibilities that exist between their different areas of the similar geographical space to create the basis to lift themselves up. And that was really the basis of the Soviet Union, that we need to really go beyond the nation state, not because it's bad to be proud of who you are or what language you speak or whatever it may be, but the very idea of these exclusive nation states that divide and fight one another purely on the basis of language, ethnicity, or religion, it's a relic of the past. And that for oppressed peoples and developing nations to move forward, for African countries to be able to lift themselves out of the vestiges of colonialism, it requires unity, not division. And I think that's why you see these imperialist policies want to divide everyone. They want to divide the Horn of Africa. They want to divide Syria. They want to divide Russia. They want to divide China. They want to divide everybody because they know very clearly that ultimately, If they want to stay on top and keep everyone else on the bottom, they have to prevent the obvious unities that can come together to create strong, powerful nations that are multinational, yes, but that also have developed their own form of unity.
0: They don't want the United States of Africa. They don't want the United States of the countries that have been colonized and Mm semi-colonized. They want the imperialists to be a United States. Yes. But no one else. Let's go back and end, Eugene, where we started. And where we started was we are on the precipice of a major escalation. It's already begun. The fact that Russia is now feeling compelled after what they say is a Western U.S.-NATO-led counteroffensive has taken territory in the northeast part of Ukraine. They're not going to lose. They're determined not to lose. They're going to mobilize more forces. Biden made it clear at the U.N. the U.S. isn't going back to the negotiating table. The thing is going to escalate. And now- nuclear war is being talked about, that means NATO will start to also prepare for nuclear war. This is in the nature of the beast. So for the people in the United States and the people in Europe, if we believe that this war started when Russia pulled the trigger on February 24th, we miss the historical context of why the war has started, and also we lose how the war can end because the two go together. The war did not start when Russia invaded. The war started especially on February 22, 2014, when the U.S. and the EU, the NATO countries in Europe, orchestrated a coup d'etat against the Yanukovych government. And that government, the new government, the right-wing government, it had a very big Nazi influence. That's not an exaggeration. That government went to war against the Russian-speaking part of the population in the East. It said Russia is no longer going to be a second official language. Russian people were slaughtered. The people in the Odessa Trade Union were burned alive. Mm -hmm. The shelling of the East. I mean, the announcement that there would be independent people's republics Putin didn't recognize them for all those years. Those people were self-organizing because they faced a real problem,
1: which is- being killed, being maimed.
0: Being killed and maimed. So what about the 14,000 people who died in the eastern part of Ukraine because of the U.S.-led coup d'etat and NATO interference and the right-wing character of the Ukrainian government? If we want to be objective about the war, and even if you disagree with Putin's tactic and say, well, he should have- continue to expose NATO and try to win over people in Europe, you know, rather than this invasion, which basically united all of the imperialists together. I was going to make that point earlier that Lenin always tried to, you know, build the unity of the oppressed, but always create divisions among the imperialists. Mm -hmm. The Russian invasion tactically united the imperialists. And so that's to the disadvantage of Russia. Even if you see all that, disagree with all that, If we ignore what happened to the Russian-speaking part of the population in the eastern part of the country, then we're actually turning away from a reality. And the Minsk Accords were an arrangement that the Russian government agreed to, which could have simmered that down, calmed that struggle down, given those areas a large degree of autonomy within Ukraine. This war would not have happened. And then the U.S., as you pointed out in September 21, forged military alliances with the with the government in Ukraine to make it a permanent sort of military partner of the United States. Like, if we want to end the war, we have to recognize that the war isn't just about Russian aggression. It's really about what's happened since 2014 and the shifting politics there. Because that means if we want the war to end, calling for Russia's withdrawal is meaningless. What we need to be calling for is U.S. imperialism and its proxies to go back to the negotiating table And stop World War III and a possible nuclear war from happening. And if we don't put that kind of pressure on the Biden administration or the European governments, any other words about peace are just BS. They're just BS. They don't mean anything. This is the only path to peace. And again, we have to understand the context for how this war actually started. Eugene, I'm going to give you the last word on that.
1: Yeah, well, I agree with you 100%. I mean, you cannot agree with Putin's justifications or at least not agree with them fully. You can feel you wish something else would have happened. You can say that it's unfortunate this is all going on, but you can't deny the concrete conditions and the concrete realities that led us to this point. This was completely avoidable. And it's ironic because people are saying, well, if the U.S. hadn't done X, Y, and Z, then, well, Russia would have just gone in and taken over Ukraine. Now, we don't even know that to be true, but let's just say that is true. Well, I mean, right now, the U.S. policies are killing thousands of Ukrainians, tens of thousands of Ukrainians. How is that in some way, shape, or form a better outcome as opposed to NATO not doing this massive eastward expansion? And in fact, it seems pretty likely it would have been much easier to create a framework by which Ukraine would not have been invaded or dismembered or, you know, had tens of thousands of people died if the two sides were willing to come together to talk seriously about what it takes to create peace in Europe. But since the United States completely rejects the idea that any other country can have interest, the you can't have any sort of negotiation. You can't have a negotiation with someone if you basically say that everything you're saying is totally illegitimate and I refuse to recognize it. Well, then why would I ever negotiate? But rather than actually look at the concrete conditions and the concrete realities, the US has just decided they're gonna push a policy and Russia can either accept it or be destroyed. And Ukraine can be a pawn in that game and they'll feel great about it in Washington because they won't have to sacrifice anyone's lives that might actually come back and bite them you know, at election time or whatever it may be. So I think this is a very key and a very critical moment to agree, to put pressure on the Biden administration and other administrations around the world who are continuing to fuel this conflict, who refuse to negotiate, who refuse to put any serious language of peace on the table, because quite frankly, the stakes are too high. Nuclear war, potentially hundreds of thousands of people dead, even without a nuclear war across Ukraine and Russia. I mean, this is a terrible, terrible tragedy. And it's one that is deeply rooted in the U.S. policies of trying to dominate the world. And that means if there's a road in, there's a road out. And if the U.S. desire to dominate your Europe and dominate the world was the road in, then that's the way we got to get back out and we have to address those issues. And I think it's critically important that whatever we think about Putin, however we characterize what he's doing, that we recognize that basic reality, that there is a basis by which you can have a road to peace. But it does require recognizing that other countries have interests, whether the U.S. likes it or not.
0: All right. And Eugene, as you pointed out, and I hope our audience goes back and looks at what happened when Reagan was threatening the Soviet Union, Europe rose up and so did the people in the United States, a mass anti-nuclear movement,
1: can I say one more thing about yeah, that? Just uh, say Because that's one of the saddest parts of the war, is that the most warlike elements in Germany are from the Green Party that in the 1980s was created specifically to oppose exactly this kind of aggression. And I think it's just shameful, really, to see these people like the foreign minister of Germany and others, you know, come out and, and be, you know, more bellicose than Biden on some of these questions. So it's a bit of a side point, but it is an important historical connection, I think, to see the degeneration of so many political forces after the collapse of the Soviet Soviet Union. But again, just to reinforce the fact that there was a political movement that was a political earthquake all across Western Europe and here in the United States that forced the worst of the worst to take a step back from the brink.
0: Yeah. And that's got to be our message. We're not doing this show because we're interested in politics or politics are interesting. We want to make social change. In this case, we want to prevent a wider war. We want to prevent a nuclear war. Eugene Purier, thank you.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at Patreon.com dot com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker